middle school teacher and math coach on a mission to help educators create a positive classroom community and reach every learner, all while finding balance in their own lives. Since I've left the classroom, I've learned so much about equity in education, building classroom community, math instructional practices that increase accessibility and learning, mindfulness and self-care, and ways to maximize time and impact through focused work and prioritization. Through conversations with experienced educators, you'll gain new knowledge, insights and inspiration, and practical ideas to try in your own classroom. I'll also share my many lessons learned over the years with the hope that it will accelerate your learning curve as a teacher. If you're an educator who's working hard to accelerate your students' confidence and understanding in math, you're in the right place. I want to be your mindful math coach, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Chrissy Allison, and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Math Podcast. By the end of today's episode, you will have clarity on three focus areas that top my list when it comes to strong math instruction, and I'm going to tell you why I suggest you focus on them above other items that you could choose to focus on. Before I share them with you, I want to ask you a question. How would you explain the idea of strong math instruction? In your opinion, what does it look like? sound like? feel like? What are the things you'd be doing as a teacher? And what would the students be doing? In fact, when I coach teachers one-on-one or work with leadership teams, I always start by asking them to describe their vision for strong and equitable instruction in their classroom or school. Here are some of their answers. Students are really engaged and enthusiastic. Students drive their own learning. They meet standards. Everything in the classroom has a flow. There's engagement across the board. Kids want to learn and participate. Students are motivated. Trying and failing is more accepted than not trying at all. Mistakes are okay. Everyone makes them, and it's okay as long as you learn from them. There's less teacher talk time, and we put the push on students. There's a well-planned discussion. Relevant problems and tasks. Students have a deep understanding of the math. Students retain the content. Students are independent learners, problem solvers, and confident in their answers. Students engage in the work and try. They don't wait for the teacher to do the work. And students engage in the struggle. And when I've done similar activities with groups of teachers and leaders, the group is usually pretty aligned. Some of the themes that come up are student engagement, classroom discourse, differentiation, students explaining their thinking, alignment to standards, math reasoning and students being able to justify their answers, data-driven instruction, classroom culture and student mindsets, and student-centered learning, just to name a few. Okay, is your head spinning yet? I mean, it's a long list. And to be clear, I think all of these should be on the list. They are all important. In fact, when I articulate my vision for strong math instruction, I typically pull from two sources— First, the eight effective mathematics teaching practices from NCTM and the instructional practice guide from Achieve the Core. We'll be sure to link both of those free resources in the show notes on www.mindfulmathcoach.com. 
However, the truth is that we can't focus on all of them at once, nor should we try. In the last episode, I talked about the 80-20 rule, and if you haven't listened to that one yet, go check it out. But as a reminder, the 80-20 rule says that 80% of our results come from 20% of our actions. I wholeheartedly believe this, which is why I became obsessed with figuring out which items on the list make the biggest difference when it comes to student learning. Well, that and the fact that it was part of my job. What I mean is that as the director of math professional learning, it was my responsibility to not only create the content, but make recommendations about the sequence of learning. So for example, I was asked what I thought we should work on in the first year, second year, and third year with a school. I thought about it for a while, ran some ideas by trusted colleagues, and eventually put my best thinking down on paper. But at the same time, I started looking for evidence of the top factors that make a difference when it comes to student achievement, knowing that once I found them, I'd suggest we start there. Here's where I've landed. Number one, understanding and teaching grade-level content to all students. By understanding, I mean that teachers have deep content knowledge about the standards they are teaching and that students spend the majority of their time working on grade-level content, even if they have unfinished learning from previous grades. Number two, ensuring all students have access and entry into the grade-level content, meaning that problems and tasks have multiple entry points so that every student can engage in the problem. It also means that the teacher has adapted the lesson in a way to increase accessibility for English language learners, students with unfinished learning, and diverse learners. Number three, engaging students in deep thinking about the mathematics, which means that students have the opportunity to connect ideas and synthesize those ideas. These three ideas, on grade level content, increasing accessibility to the content, Shifting the heavy thinking from teacher to students have a strong presence in the work I do now, whether it be in the content I create, the coaching I do, and even in choosing topics for this podcast. Now, as much as I'd love for you to simply take my word for it, we are all math educators, and I know math educators do not accept ideas without proof. I know I don't. So for the remainder of this episode, I'm going to explain why I put these at the top of my list and how I narrowed in from the long list of things we could focus on during instruction. Here we go. About six years ago, I was working at an educational nonprofit, as I mentioned in episode one, and my role was to figure out what was working best in math classrooms to help students learn and then share the information across our organization and with our partner schools. When I first got into the role, I thought it wouldn't be too difficult. I mean, I had access to lots of resources to help me do this. Dozens of coaches who were on the ground in schools who I thought could point me in the right direction. Tons and tons of assessment data that I assumed would be the breadcrumbs I'd need to follow in order to find strong practices to share. And finally, time to read and research so-called best practices in order to cross-reference my findings in the schools. I thought. Okay, cool. This shouldn't be too hard. That is, until I really started diving into it and found dead end after dead end after dead end. Here are a few of the ways I tried and failed to find examples and then capture them to share with others. First, I followed the data. I mean, I was sitting on a gold mine of student data and I thought, how hard could it be to find the outliers and see what they're doing? 
Wait for it. The answer is much harder than I initially thought. The biggest problem was that when we followed the data and showed up in classrooms, the instruction usually did not reflect the strong practices we were hoping to capture, like students making sense of problems and discussing the math. Instead, it was just more of the same old, same old. Teachers walking students through steps and procedures and problems, which we all know leads to more short-term success than long-term learning and retention. Next, I tried to ask the coaches for recommendations. Which teachers have you seen that are getting great results and might be open to a conversation or a visit so I can find out what they're doing to have such great success? Unfortunately, this approach didn't gain much traction either. Part of the challenge was that at the time, the coaches mainly worked with the leadership team and not the teachers, so they weren't necessarily in classrooms often enough to form an opinion about which teachers we could learn from the most. Other times it looked promising, but somehow something always seemed to get in the way. Whether the teacher left the school, went on maternity leave, or even the time we were all set to interview a teacher and the pipes burst in the school. I am not making that up. After many false starts, failed attempts, and wasted time, I gave up with this approach. I wasn't the only one looking to discover the top needle movers connected to math instruction. This is a shared goal among many, and so over the years, different groups and individuals shared their opinions publicly. And I always worked hard to stay abreast of what other researchers and organizations were proposing. But it's in my nature to be skeptical, so I never blindly accept things without proof. And most of the time, there was very little proof. The data was either conflicting or inconclusive. For example, some organizations claimed that high-quality curriculum leads to increased scores, but I tried and failed to confirm these claims in the research. This was beyond frustrating for me. And again, it's not because I couldn't figure out what makes for strong math instruction, because actually the field is quite aligned on that front. It was because I saw the burden it put on teachers and school leaders to try to master each and every one of these best practices and the amount of time in terms of both PD hours in, every, in any given year and also in terms of years of teaching that it would take to gain expertise in every single area and then shift your practices accordingly. In fact, from what I saw, the majority of teachers will leave the teaching force before they reach this point, which leaves the students where. So even though it was so frustrating to me, I didn't give up. Back to the drawing board. Finally, after four plus years in the role, wondering what specifically makes the biggest difference when it comes to student learning in math, a pattern started to emerge. I'd seen some data here and there that really stood out from the rest. Data that showed students having breakthrough results, meaning that there was evidence of huge jumps in math learning. For example, I'd consider seeing double-digit growth in the percent of students who meet or exceed standards on the state's summative assessment, such as the PARC or Smarter Balanced Assessment, as being breakthrough results. Or large numbers of students moving up from the lowest category on a standardized test. Unfortunately, I have to tell you that, in my experience, these examples are few and far between. But whenever I came across them, whether the school partnered with us or not, I kept notes about the scores themselves and what changes the school had made to increase the learning. 
And after four years, I had a number of these instances compiled in a Google Doc, and a pattern started to emerge. See if you can spot it yourself. One school focused on using rich math tasks at least twice a month. Another district started implementing teaching through problem-solving lessons, inspired by the math instructional approach in Japan. And yet another used the five practices model, created by Margaret Smith and Mary Kay Stein, to plan and facilitate learning. And there were about four or five more. Now, the first thing I noticed was that they were all using different curricula. And some even created their own lessons and units. So I knew that curricula was definitely not the silver bullet many people hoped it would be. Disclaimer here, I'm not saying that using a common curriculum that is highly aligned to the standards is not a good idea. In fact, in most cases, I think it is a good idea. And there are a ton of benefits to using a common curricula across a school or a district, especially if it's strong. But I am saying that simply putting this in place is not in and of itself a needle mover. Here's what stood out to me. In every single case, they had put significant effort into adopting an instructional approach that shifts the deep thinking to the students. Math tasks, teaching through problem solving, and the five practices have a lot in common. The details vary, but their goal is the same to engage students in problem solving, allowing students to use multiple strategies to solve problems based on their understanding and prior knowledge, and sharing and discussing their thinking aloud as a class. Boom. There it was. I remember the day I noticed this trend. It was a huge aha, and yet it also seemed so obvious once I saw it. I mean, I had been sharing a quote from the article Closing the Teaching Gap for years as part of our professional learning. Closing the Teaching Gap is written by James W. Stigler and James Hebert, and in it they discuss their book The Teaching Gap, which was published in 1999. Here's how they describe the book in their own words. They say it's primarily a report covering a large research project, the TIMS 1995 video study, which looked at mathematics teaching in three countries, Germany, Japan, and the United States. They go on to say the teaching methods in each of these high-achieving countries not only looked quite different from those in Japan, they also looked quite different from each other. In other words, it appears that there is not one way to teach effectively, but many. They go on to say, although teachers in the high-achieving countries employed a variety of strategies and routines, in every case, these strategies were used to achieve a common learning experience for students. Czech teachers might lecture, and Dutch teachers might not, but their varied approaches all accomplish the engagement of students in active struggle with core mathematics concepts and procedures. It was this feature of teaching that we found common to the high achievers and missing in the United States. Now, you may be familiar with the Tim study, and one of the outcomes of that was this realization that in math instruction in the United States just wasn't cutting it. Our scores were much lower than many, many other countries, including Japan. And so that's why uh, there was a lot of mention comparing us to Japan and other high-performing countries. But what those quotes show is that there wasn't just one way that instruction led to learning. In fact, 
It was the opposite. There were a lot of different approaches. But this one thing they all had in common was engaging students in active struggle with core mathematics concepts and procedures, which in my mind is akin to students doing the thinking, right? They're doing the active struggle, engaging with the math. And this isn't shocking when you put the idea up against what we know are the best practices of math instruction, right? The idea of shifting thinking to students has its fingerprints all over the Instructional Practice Guide from Student Achievement Partners and the Eight Effective Teaching Practices from NCTM. But it is clarifying because, again, teachers are super busy and they typically don't have a ton of time for professional learning on every single topic on the list of best practices or the list that's on their teacher evaluation. I mean, I remember doing teacher evaluations that were pages long and with every category counting for pretty much the same number of points. So in discovering this common factor across all of the double-digit and growth examples, I hoped that I was on to something, and perhaps knowledge of the impact of this factor could help inspire teachers and coaches and administrators to make this factor a top priority. But the problem was that I didn't know anyone who was working on this specific priority together with on-grade-level focused instruction and increasing accessibility to grade-level content to support students with unfinished learning. And I believe it's the combination of these three factors that creates the magic. You see, over the years, I'd seen schools and districts pick one area to focus on let's say, understanding standards or implementing a new curriculum or one aspect of instruction, such as classroom discourse. And while I am a believer in focusing our efforts and not trying to do everything at once, I do not think this strategy leads to consistently strong instruction as urgently and as necessary to really catch kids up when they have large amounts of unfinished learning. With this approach, it could take anywhere from three to five years to get to a place where we start to see enough change resulting in increased student learning. Now, I've always preached that we must work on both content and practice at the same time, but many schools felt like that would overwhelm the teachers. So instead, they created a three to five year plan that would hopefully culminate in strong instruction at some point. But what tends to happen? New initiatives come up and the plan changes, teachers leave and new teachers come on in, and so we start them back at square one. And meanwhile, kids are getting further and further behind. In my opinion, this is unacceptable. And we need a strategy that's going to pay off immediately. Think about it. Grade-level content without good teaching leaves kids frustrated and fumbling around in the darkness to figure it out for themselves. And strong practices without the right content is simply not effective, nor is it equitable for the students in the class. And even if you provide on-grade level tasks with strong questions to engage students in thinking, but you haven't planned for accessibility, you will inevitably run into challenges because of students' unfinished learning. As an aside, in future episodes, I'll talk more about why I believe grade-level content and increasing accessibility should be the other two main areas of focus, but I don't want this episode to be too long, so today I'll mainly share about the third factor, students doing the deep thinking. Okay, back to the story. So I was saying that even though I believed I'd found a powerful trio of topics that would move the needle, it was pretty difficult to know for sure if I was onto something without testing it. 
since I was a little obsessed with this question by now, after all, remember it had been four years since I embarked on this journey, I found a way to do some active I found a way to do some action research. I asked my former school if they'd be interested in free coaching and in exchange allow me to collect evidence in the form of classroom video, student work samples, and teacher interviews. They're on a tight budget, but they're always trying to improve learning for students, so it was no surprise that they said yes. Over the course of the next year, I worked with five leaders and five teachers at the school to plan, teach, and debrief lessons, where our sole purpose was to plan lessons aligned to grade-level content, ensure all students could access the content by creating an accessibility bridge, and structure the lesson in a way where students did most of the heavy lifting. I created a planning guide and a process for ongoing coaching cycles to take place. The results were pretty amazing. The teachers were excited about the change they saw in their classroom because it had an immediate effect on student engagement, and leaders felt like there was significant change in the teachers' practices just from planning and teaching one lesson using this different approach. So now I knew for sure that I was onto something. And I felt like I had to share this information with more people. So I quickly told the coaches at my organization about my discovery. And I started to embed this trio of high-impact practices into the content we already had. Planning guides, data analysis tools, professional learning sessions. And I wrote a blog post about it that I'll include in the show notes. Because of the clarity I now have on three factors that truly make a difference in student learning when it comes to math, they are the things I put in my 80-20 bucket. Meaning... I try to spend the bulk of my time on this small list of things, and I'm suggesting that you consider this as well. Here they are one final time in case you've been multitasking or have a mama brain like me. The three factors are on grade level content, a plan to increase accessibility for your students, and shifting the heavy thinking from teacher to students. If you're a teacher, I encourage you to keep these three ideas top of mind as you plan lessons for your students. And if you're an instructional coach, I encourage you to prioritize these factors as you work with teachers. The one caveat I'll give is that if classroom management and student behavior is an issue in a classroom, then I'd actually suggest starting there. And once the classroom is running more smoothly, then shift to one of these other areas. Okay, that about wraps it up for today. If you want to learn more, go to www.mindfulmathcoach.com and click podcast to access the show notes for this episode. You'll see a link to the blog post I mentioned entitled The Magic is in the Mess, as well as the instructional practice guide from Achieve the Core and a copy of the eight effective mathematics teaching practices from NCTM. If you enjoyed this episode and want to make sure you don't miss the next one, head over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen in and hit subscribe now. You know, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, and oftentimes the math improvement journey can feel a thousand miles long. That's why I'm so glad we're on this mindful math journey together, and in particular, why I'm glad you've chosen to take a single step forward today with me by listening into this episode. Thanks for tuning in. 